One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Cowboys at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, November 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. The Cowboys listed all 53 players on the active roster as full participants on Wednesday's estimated practice report. They only held a walkthrough. Panthers tight end Hayden Hurst missed practice Wednesday while in the concussion protocol. He will likely miss week 11. Panthers wide receiver DJ Shark returned to full practice on Wednesday after missing week 10 with an elbow injury. CeeDee Lamb has absolutely destroyed man coverage this season, but has been more human against zone, which is important considering the Panthers play the third highest rate of zone coverage this year. Adam Thielen holds an elite 33.3% targets per route run rate against man coverage this season, which is interesting because the Cowboys have run man coverage at the third highest rate in the league. How Dallas will try to win. We all know the infamous off-season quotes from Cowboys head coach Mike McCarthy by now, three separate times alluding to the fact that he didn't necessarily want to light up the scoreboard with every possession. And that is exactly how he approached the game plans before the team's Week 7 bye. Ranked near the middle of the league in pass rate over expectation and pace of play through the first six weeks. After their bye, however, this team has fully leaned into transforming their offense into something that looks to maximize each possession. Their three highest pass rate over expectation games have all come in the previous three weeks, moving them to the 12th overall PROE on the season. Two of those games resulted in blowout wins against the Rams and Giants, during which Dak Prescott played exactly zero fourth quarter snaps and the team still had elite PROE values. Furthermore, after failing to throw for more than 300 yards in any game over the first six weeks of the season, Dak has surpassed 300 yards through the air in every game since the bye, and has thrown for three or more touchdowns in each contest in that time after just one game of multiple touchdown tosses in the first six weeks. It was week two against the Jets. Dak and the Cowboys are cooking, and his head coach and offensive play caller is putting him in a position to succeed. Finally, and something that could be viewed as the most important change for this team, the Cowboys have remained aggressive regardless of game script, for at least three quarters, and have become extremely player-focused, with Mike McCarthy going so far as to keep C.D. Lamb in the game on the first two plays of the fourth quarter after the rest of the starters left the game in Week 10 to feed Lamb two short passes to get him over 150 receiving yards for three straight contests. Leadback Tony Pollard continues to operate in a pure workhorse role with the starters, seeing near 80% of the team's opportunities with the starters since Week 8. So, while his snap rates appear to be near leadback status and below workhorse status over the previous three games, we must remember that the starters played in only one fourth quarter during that span. The goods with Pollard are 44 red zone touches, ranks second in the league behind only Christian McCaffrey, averages 15 carries and 3.9 targets per game this year, and nearly 80% opportunity share with the starters. The bads with Pollard? 4.4 yards per touch ranks 36th, while 3.9 yards per carry ranks 42nd this year. He has a modest 44% breakaway run rate, which ranks 22nd in the league. He has just six goal line carries through nine games played. His 13.4% juke rate ranks 52nd in the league. The team is not getting him the ball in space as they did last season, Instead, they are utilizing him in a between-the-tackles straightforward way. The matchup on the ground is pristine against a Panthers defense allowing 4.3 yards per carry, 15 rushing scores, and 1.39 yards before contact this season, but the efficiency concerns remain rooted in schematic usage. 
In other words, it is much likelier that Pollard remains a victim of an uninspiring run scheme than that he forgot how to be a running back this offseason. Pollard will be backed up by Rico Dowdle in a strict change-of-pace role, who typically sees around 20% of the team's snaps and opportunities in the absence of a blowout. It should not be understated just how elite C.D. Lamb has been during this recent three-game surge. During that time, Lamb has seen a combined 44 targets, 14.67 per game, while seeing 14 targets or more in every game. He has surpassed 150 receiving yards in each game while scoring four total touchdowns, three receiving and one rushing, including two games of multiple touchdowns scored, leading to two games of 42.5 DK points or more in three tries. All of that on an absolutely elite 40% team target market share. The team's second option through the air until last week had been tight end Jake Ferguson, highlighted by a robust 29.8% red zone target market share. That was until Brandon Cooks saw only his second game with more than four targets and proceeded to easily set season highs in targets, receptions, and yards on his way to a tidy 9 for 173 and 1 receiving line. What's most impressive about that performance is that it came on just 41 offensive snaps. While splitting snaps with Michael Gallup, Jalen Tolbert, and Jalen Brooks, Cavante Turpin was inactive. Expect Dallas to continue to run from an 11 personnel base with Lamb and Ferguson in near every down rolls, while Cook sees sub-elite snap rates and the tertiary options through the air. Gallup, Tolbert, Turpin, and Brooks share the remaining snaps. The Panthers enter Week 11 playing the third highest rate of zone coverage, more than 85% of the time, against which Lamb's targets per route run rate drops from 33% against man to 22% against zone. How Carolina will try to win The Panthers rank in the league's top half in pace of play. They are 11th at 28.1 seconds per play, and right near the NFL average in pass rate over expectation. That said, we got another shakeup with this team as head coach Frank Wright is reportedly taking back offensive play-calling duties after offensive coordinator Thomas Brown was given the keys to the offense coming out of the team's Week 7 bye. Comparing the two, the team scored 18.67 points per game with Reich at the helm over a six-game sample and 13.67 points with Thomas at the helm over a three-game sample. More comparisons. Basically, the offense went from the Atlanta Falcons at 18.9 points per game this year, 24th in the league, went under Reich to the New England Patriots, 14.1 points per game this year, 31st in the league, went under Thomas. And that largely wasn't just a case of poor opposition, as the team played Houston, Indianapolis, and Chicago the previous three weeks. Either way, this team wants to run absurd rates of zone coverage to limit the explosive plays while running a balanced offense to shorten games. Finally, Reich's and Thomas's offenses appear uninspiring and flat, with little in the way of forward-leaning concepts, pre-snap motion, or layered route trees. The Panthers have made good on their promise to get Chuba Hubbard more involved in the offense in recent weeks, with the veteran backup leading the team in snap rate and opportunity since their Week 7 bye. That said, we saw a spark introduced by incumbent starter Miles Sanders in Week 9, only for the disgruntled back to be forgotten about once again in Week 10. Sanders did see his highest snap rate since missing Week 6 with injury last week at 38%, but he was given only four running back opportunities in the narrow loss to the Bears. Expect another week with Hubbard as the lead back and Sanders in a strict change of pace role, with neither back doing much to inspire confidence, even though the matchup slightly tilts expectations to the ground, considering 1.39 yards allowed before contact, 11th most, a middling 4.1 yards per carry allowed, 15th, and 7 rushing scores allowed, 16th, from the Dallas defense. Adam Thielen has been the key cog to this Carolina pass offense, amassing a robust 86 targets through 9 games, which is 9.6 per game. 
Most interesting, however, has been his muted production in recent weeks while offensive coordinator Thomas Brown has called plays. Thielen returned 30 DK points or more in half of his games over the first six weeks with Frank Wright calling plays and peaked at 15.2 DK points during three games with Brown calling plays. Thielen also holds an elite 33.3% targets per route run rate against man coverage this season, and the Cowboys run man at the third highest rate in the league. It appears to be a week to jump back on the Thielen bus. The Panthers run almost exclusively from 11 personnel this season, meaning both Jonathan Mingo and DJ Chark should be expected to see near every down rolls in Week 11. Chark's return from a one-game absence introduces a smidge of uncertainty regarding his individual role, with a role likeliest to be shared with Terrace Marshall should he not be ready for an every down roll. Hayden Hurst's likely absence due to a concussion also introduces some uncertainty, particularly considering the Panthers have had seven total tight ends active at some point this season. Even so, Tommy Tremble should be the primary tight end in this spot. Theoretically, there is an opportunity for Chark to see downfield looks against the heavy man coverage rates of the Cowboys, but he has been far from consistent this season. Likeliest Game Flow The Cowboys are the far superior team from top to bottom. That should lead to another weird game environment involving Dallas, which we should have grown accustomed to this season. Seven of nine games have been blowouts in either direction for the Cowboys this season, with neutral game environments against just the Eagles in Week 9 and the Chargers in Week 6. They were blown out by the Cardinals in Week 3 and the 49ers in Week 5, and blew out the Giants in Week 10, the Rams in Week 8, and the Patriots in Week 4, the Jets in Week 2, and the Giants in Week 1. This game has all the makings of a blowout in favor of the Cowboys against the team with the fewest wins in the league, but we're likely to see Dallas forced to march the field at a higher rate against the heavy zone rates of the Panthers as opposed to ripping off multiple splash plays as they have in recent weeks. That makes volume and touchdowns of utmost importance to the primary skill position players of the Cowboys, bringing C.D. Lamb and tight end Jake Ferguson back to the forefront of weekly consideration. On the other side, as mentioned above, Adam Thielen's elite underlying metrics combined with a return to play-calling duties for Frank Reich puts him in a good spot against a Cowboys defense and man coverage at the third highest rate in the league. Finally, Tony Pollard has the matchup and expected game environment working in his favor, but his efficiency numbers have been poor, and recent play-calling tendencies from the Cowboys hit at another pass-heavy approach in this spot. Steelers at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, November 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 33. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Pittsburgh has a 6-3 record despite having a negative 26-point differential this season. Cleveland just lost franchise quarterback Deshaun Watson for the season to a shoulder injury and will start rookie Dorian Thompson-Robinson this week. Both defenses are performing at a very high level this season and have feasted. This is a rematch of an early Pittsburgh victory, largely due to two defensive touchdowns. There will certainly be a lot of bad blood on the field after Nick Chubb was lost for the season to a devastating knee injury on a relatively dirty-looking play. How Pittsburgh will try to win. The Steelers find ways to win. No other way to say it, they aren't statistically or on film one of the top teams in the league, but they have a 6-3 record and are in the thick of the AFC playoff race. The Steelers also appear to be evolving and improving as the season progresses. This could potentially make them a dangerous team late in the season if Kenny Pickett's level of play can improve even a little bit. Pittsburgh acknowledged how good running back Jalen Warren was last week by formally announcing him as the starter. Warren responded with his best game of the season and made several head-turning plays. The Steelers still gave Najee Harris the ball, and he also performed well against a struggling Packers run defense. 
The bottom line is that Pittsburgh's game plan on a week-to-week basis is to lean on their improving run game and defense and rely on their opponents to make mistakes that allow them to win. This week against the Browns will almost certainly be the same recipe for Pittsburgh as what was just described, as they face a team that handed them a win with multiple turnovers leading to defensive touchdowns in their first matchup and are now trotting out a rookie quarterback who looked completely overwhelmed in his only previous start against a similar Baltimore defense. Kenny Pickett is playing fine football but isn't being asked to do much. On the surface, there doesn't appear to be any reason why the Steelers would try to force the issue against one of the top defenses in the NFL. The Browns have given up some big offensive performances this season, but those have primarily been against very aggressive offenses. They have fared very well whenever they have faced a conservative, run-heavy offense. Pittsburgh will not try to fix what isn't broken, especially with the unproven nature of their opponent's quarterback, and we should see a healthy dose of Harris and Warren with a focus on the passing game of protecting the ball and getting it out quickly. Perhaps some screens will slow down the Browns' pass rush and neutralize Miles Garrett. How Cleveland will try to win Things start from scratch for Cleveland this week after the loss of Deshaun Watson and the decision to start rookie Dorian Thompson-Robinson over veteran P.J. Walker. In DTR's only previous start against the Ravens, he was sacked four times and went 19 for 36 for only 121 yards with three interceptions. Pittsburgh's defense ranks dead last in the NFL in yards per attempt allowed, but that is largely due to some big plays and performances they gave up against high-powered offenses and elite talents. They have PFF's 7th graded pass rush and rank 8th in pass defense DVOA, so it is tough to imagine DTR comes out and dices them up in this matchup. Given the circumstances and matchup, it's also hard to imagine that the Browns will have a high pass rate. The Browns' defense ranks first in the NFL against the pass and run DVOA and is coming off a game where they were able to bounce back from a rough start to help lead to a comeback win over the Ravens. Cleveland ranks 31st in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, and this week's situation points to a game plan that should lean even heavier on the running game. Jerome Ford and Kareem Hunt should both get a ton of work in this game and it won't be surprising to see Pierre Strong mixed in for some designed outside runs and screens as well, with Elijah Moore potentially being involved in some short area schemed looks that try to make things easier on DTR. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams will likely enter this game focused on protecting their quarterback and relying on their defense. The Browns are already one of the most run-heavy teams in the league and are almost certain to increase their running tendencies due to their quarterback situation. Meanwhile, the Steelers are starting to roll and their running game is starting to click. Both teams have multiple backs they trust and can rotate in, which will keep either of them from feeling forced to throw more to preserve their guys. Seeing four running backs in this game surpass 15 touches won't be surprising. Neither team plays with a particularly high tempo, and both defenses are so good that this profiles as a classic AFC North slugfest, as the 33-point over-under would imply. If we see explosive plays in this game, they will almost certainly start with the running game, defenses, or special teams. This certainly feels like a game where if either team gets to 20 points, they will win. The only X-Factor scenario that could change this outlook will be if DTR shows massive improvement, which is certainly possible for a rookie with a week to prepare. Bears at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, November 19th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 48. Game Overview by Hilo. Wide receiver Khalif Raymond picked up a mild high ankle sprain in the team's Week 10 win over the Chargers. He practiced in a limited fashion Wednesday. QB Justin Fields returned to practice as a full participant Wednesday and appears likely to start against the Lions. Running backs Khalil Herbert and Donta Foreman were both limited participants in Wednesday's session. Herbert is currently in his 21-day practice window to be activated from injured reserve. 
Amon Ross St. Brown has gone over 100 yards through the air in six of eight games and has 100 yards and or a touchdown in every game this season. How Chicago will try to win. The Bears have experienced a season of change through the first 10 weeks, failing to get anything going in a static offense over the first three weeks of the season, erupting for massive offensive performances in week four and five against the Broncos and Commanders, and then adapting to a change at quarterback with the injury to Justin Fields. That has to give this team three separate identities through just over half the season, and it remains pure conjecture to speculate on what it will look like with Fields expected back for a difficult matchup with their division rivals. That said, if we take the Bears at face value and examine the overall tendencies we've seen in those three different mini-eras, we're left with the assumption that they'd like to base their offense on the ground game, with the potential for downfield passing with Fields back in the fold. In the two eruption games this season, weeks four and five, the Bears attempted 64 passes to 63 total rush attempts. That gives us a solid baseline expectation, one that involves modest pace and a run-balanced offensive design. As was touched on earlier, there are continued uncertainties at play with this backfield. Khalil Herbert had his 21-day practice window opened, but has yet to get in a full practice in his bid to return from injured reserve. Fill-in leadback Donta Foreman also popped on the injury report Wednesday with a limited session, which makes sense considering his robust workload in recent weeks. We only have a one-game sample with all three of Herbert, Foreman, and rookie Roshan Johnson active together this season, which occurred way back in Week 1. The three shared duties in a near-even three-way split in that contest. Foreman and Herbert remain efficient backs capable of the gritty between-the-tackles work in this offense, while Johnson is best served for change of pace and obvious passing down work. Either way, expect 28-32 to 32 combined rushing attempts between those three and quarterback Justin Fields, which leaves little room for upside for any single member in that discussion unless either Herbert or Foreman miss, and even then, the matchup on the ground is about as difficult as the Bears will see this season. The Lions have held opposing backs to just 3.7 yards per carry and have yielded seven total rushing scores in nine games. Finally, Justin Fields averages just under eight rush attempts per game this season, 10.67 per game last year, which has to be considered in the equation of uncertainty as far as expected workload split amongst the ball carriers here. Wide receiver DJ Moore and tight end Cole Komet are the only remaining players to play near every down roles in the pass game, with Darnell Mooney, Tyler Scott, and Equinemius St. Brown sharing the remaining work in an offense that utilizes 12 personnel at an above-average rate. That leaves very little room for upside to develop for any pass catcher not named Moore or Komet. The Lions have run near-league average rates of man and zone coverage this season, a departure from recent history when they were one of the highest man coverage units in the league. The stout nature of their defensive front has filtered additional volume to the air this season, leaving them ranked in the bottom half of the league in fantasy points allowed to both wide receivers and tight ends. Their linebacking group is one of the more athletically gifted units in the league, which has held opposing tight ends to modest yards per route run numbers. Where teams have truly exploited the defensive tendencies of the Lions is in the red zone, with the team having allowed 15 combined touchdown passes to wide receivers and tight ends this season. How Detroit Will Try to Win the Bears started their season allowing 38 points to the Packers, 27 points to the Buccaneers, 41 points to the Chiefs, and 31 points to the Broncos. Good for, maybe bad for, a 34.25 average points allowed during the first month of play. They have since allowed 20 points to the Commanders, 19 to the Vikings, 12 to the Raiders, 30 to the Chargers, 24 to the Saints, and 13 to the Panthers. Good for 19.67 points per game allowed over six weeks. Furthermore, we've continued to talk about how the Bears have actually been pretty good against the run this season, ranking first in the league in yards allowed per carry at 3.2 and sixth in DVOA, while ranking 29th in DVOA against the pass. 
The question then becomes, how do we expect the Lions to approach a clear pass funnel matchup against the defense playing better of late, knowing they hold the league's 8th highest rush rate and 13th highest rush rate over expectation this season? The most recent and closest comps we have to this spot were the Week 10 win over the Chargers and the Week 6 win over the Buccaneers, two teams that presented similar setups to the Lions. In those games, quarterback Jared Goff attempted 33 and 44 pass attempts to 26 running back carries and 19 running back carries, respectively. Furthermore, Goff has a relatively tight range of pass attempt values this season, with 6 of 9 games in the 28-35 to 35 attempt range and no game below 28 pass attempts. The three outlier games were a 37-attempt game and a win over the Raiders, a 53-attempt game and a loss to the Ravens, and the 44-attempt game against the Buccaneers. All of that comes together to provide a projectable range of outcomes for how we expect the Lions to behave in this spot, with the likeliest scenario of a neutral to positive pass rate over expectation, 33-35 to 35 pass attempts, and a better chance of success through the air. There are some significant uncertainties regarding the expected snap rate and opportunity distribution amongst David Montgomery and rookie Jameer Gibbs, considering the two have been on the field together for fully healthy games just twice all season, in weeks 1 and 10. Even so, both players are likely to be involved, and we could see a more neutral split between the two here, similar to what we saw in Week 2, when both were within two offensive snaps played. Montgomery would fail to finish the game with injury. Last week, Montgomery saw 12 carries and no targets on 25 offensive snaps, while Gibbs saw 14 carries and 5 targets on 38 offensive snaps. Interestingly enough, each back saw an opportunity on almost exactly half of their offensive snaps, but with neither of the two overly likely to separate themselves from the other through the form of snaps. It remains unlikely that either will surpass 20 running back opportunities in this spot. That leaves their fantasy value in the hands of efficiency and touchdowns, which is important considering the Bears lead the league in yards allowed per carry, but have seeded just four rushing scores all season. Amon Ross St. Brown became the first Lions wide receiver since Calvin Johnson to surpass 100 yards receiving in five consecutive games. Side note, it seems like a lot of Megatron's records have been broken this season because we've been hearing his name a lot. Anyway. Furthermore, St. Brown has gone over 100 yards through the air in six of eight games and has 100 yards and or a touchdown in every game this season. Even with that elite production, St. Brown has done both just twice this season, which is what he'll need to do to return GPP viability at his inflated salary considering he is priced up for elite consistency, 16.6 or more DK points in every game this season. His 30.2% targets per route run rate ranks 5th, while his 30.8% team target market share ranks 8th. The dude is a monster, in the best ways possible. The Bears are in man and zone coverages near league average rates, while St. Brown holds TPRR rates 25% or higher against each coverage, slightly higher against zone at 29%. We anchored on St. Brown to start the pass game exploration because no other pass catcher outside of rookie tight end Sam Laporta has played a near every down roll in this offense this season. Laporta has three games of double-digit targets this season and carries a solid yet unspectacular 7.3 ADOT, but has seen just three deep targets and seven red zone targets through nine games played. The rest of the pass-catching snaps should be split in some way amongst Josh Reynolds, Jamison Williams, Khalif Raymond, Antoine Green, and Brock Wright, with the wild card being the recent acquisition of perimeter deep threat Donovan Peoples-Jones, the latter of whom was inactive in Week 10 as he gets up to speed in the offense. Likeliest Game Flow The likely return of Justin Fields provides additional paths to this game remaining close. With that statement said and out of the way, the Lions are the far superior team from top to bottom and are likeliest to control the game through their offensive and defensive lines as they have done so frequently this season. Even when considering the difficult matchup on the ground for the Lions and a great matchup through the air, 
we're likeliest to see a more muted offensive design, which restricts the avenues to eruption from this game environment. Similar to that discussion, the Bears are relatively unlikely to experience consistent offensive success against the suffocating Detroit defense, which is likely to lead to a situation where the Lions are able to control the game environment the way they would like to, circling back to the notion that this game environment has very few paths to igniting. That said, Amon Rao St. Brown is always in consideration due to his elite role and elite talent and gets a plus matchup in this spot. That is likely to lead to a St. Brown or stay away type stance here as the week progresses, and even then, St. Brown is priced up to a point where he is unlikely to completely burn you for not playing him. More on this in the DFS interpretation section. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Chargers at the Packers. Kickoff Sunday, November 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Hilo. Chargers wide receiver Keenan Allen, shoulder, missed practice Wednesday before returning to a limited showing on Thursday. I expect him to play. Chargers tight end Gerald Everett, chest, did not practice Wednesday or Thursday and appears to be on the wrong side of questionable. Chargers backup tight end red zone threat Donald Parham, hip, was a DNP Wednesday before a limited session Thursday. The Green Bay injury report is relatively clean, with running back Aaron Jones and wide receiver Christian Watson both practicing in a limited fashion on consecutive days. Austin Eckler and Keenan Allen combined to see 40 opportunities, carries plus targets, on 68 offensive plays run from scrimmage in Week 1 with the absence of Mike Williams and Joshua Palmer. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win The absences of Mike Williams and Joshua Palmer have really taken their collective toll on offensive coordinator Kellen Moore's offense, with no viable secondary options left standing behind Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler. Jalen Guyton has never commanded targets at a high rate. Quinton Johnson is clearly not ready for the NFL game, and is largely being utilized in ways that don't optimize his talents. Darius Davis is a diminutive slot man behind Allen, Gerald Everett is showing his age, and Joshua Kelly has been wildly inconsistent. As such, a massive portion of this offense should run through Allen and Eckler, more so than we have seen in the past. One good aspect of this offense is the proven ability to game plan and game manage to exploit deficiencies in their opposition. As such, expect a run-balanced approach with an emphasis on short area passing over the middle of the field when they do go to the air. As was mentioned above, Austin Eckler and Keenan Allen combined to see 40 opportunities on 68 offensive plays run from scrimmage in Week 10 in the absence of Mike Williams and Joshua Palmer a situation that is highly likely to continue forward due to the absence of viable secondary options. Eckler is fresh off a 26 running back opportunity game against a difficult Lions opponent in Week 10, marking the third consecutive game with seven or more targets in the process. That said, he has really struggled on the ground this season, trudging to 3.6 yards per carry and not going over a modest 3.5 yards per carry mark in any game since Week 1. That is down significantly from the 4.5 and 4.4 yards per carry values he put up in the previous two seasons, respectively. Even so, he has 23 red zone opportunities and 8 goal line carries through 6 games played, which puts him on pace for the third best red zone role in a per-game framing of all backs in the league. 
The Packers ranked 26th in DK points allowed per game to opposing backfields, having given up eight rushing scores to the position. Joshua Kelly should continue in his change-of-pace role, but has not seen more than seven running back opportunities since Week 4, the last game Eckler missed. The duo of Eckler and Allen combined for a robust 21 targets on 40 Justin Herbert pass attempts in Week 10 against the Lions, which honestly could be on the low end of the weekly range of outcomes as far as team target market share goes without Williams and Palmer. We could see these two in the 70-75% to range in a game or two at some point over the remainder of the season. There just isn't a lot of viable depth behind those two on the roster currently, and Kellen Moore has a proven record of emphasizing his top options. Seriously, Jalen Guyton, 14% TPRR against zone, is the closest player to the TPRR rates of Allen and Eckler against zone coverage this season, amongst the remaining skill position players on the roster. Quinton Johnson, 12.1%, ranks 113th in fantasy points per route run against zone coverage this season. We're exploring zone so heavily because the Packers run the ninth highest rate of zone coverage in the league this year, against which Allen holds an elite 0.54 fantasy points per route run, fourth, and solid 26.1% TPRR rate. How Green Bay will try to win. The Packers have struggled with offensive consistency throughout the season, unable to dependably march the field while also struggling to attack deep. There are three primary ways a team averages few plays per game. The Packers rank 25th at 60.4. They either play at a snail's pace in an attempt to shorten games, they have extreme offensive efficiency and rip off chunk plays at a high rate, or the offense is unable to sustain drives. The Packers land squarely in the latter category this year. The Packers have also not scored more than 20 points in a game since Week 2. Their offense is built around their offensive line, a line that has performed at an elite level in pass protection and an above-average level in the run game. Expect a run-balanced approach in a solid matchup for both on paper. Finally, the Packers are near-league average in 12 personnel usage and utilize 0-21 personnel, but their rotations remain messy from game to game, likely based on the game plan coming in. On that note, the game plans coming in have been nothing short of atrocious, with the team scoring just 49 first-half points through nine games played, 5.44 laughable first-half points per game, scoring three first-half points or fewer in a whopping five of nine games this season. Not good, Bob. From a how-do-these-two-teams-match-up perspective, things look great on paper for the Packers in this spot, against a Chargers defense being gashed deep and giving up the most yards before contact in the league on the ground. The backfield has remained a maddening split between Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. Both backs have struggled on the ground despite the offensive line performing at above-average levels, both averaging just 3.7 yards per carry in what has become a prevailing theme of this offense, inefficiency. Jones has seen five or more targets in each of the previous four games since returning from a hamstring injury for the second time this season, and has been far more efficient with the ball in his hands through the air to the tune of 2.08 yards per route run, which ranks third in the league amongst qualified backs. Jones also carries a much higher snap-to-opportunity ratio, whereas Dylan has played a higher rate of empty snaps. Even so, the relatively low snap rates from Jones due to the continued playing time of Dylan has largely held the former's ceiling in check this season. 
Another plus for the individual matchup of Jones is the fact that the Chargers have filtered the second most targets to the running back position this season at 81, or 9 per game. As such, Jones carries theoretical matchup-induced ceiling despite the inconsistent performances this season. Similar to the backfield, the primary pass catchers in this offense have all played sub-elite snap rates in recent weeks through a maddening rotation of situational packages, which largely fail to inspire. Since the team's Week 6 bye, all of Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, Jaden Reed, and tight end Luke Musgrave have been held to snap rates in the low 80s, while Dontavian Wicks remains involved after being thrust into significant work earlier in the season while Watson was out with his hamstring injury. Watson is the downfield threat, boasting the fourth deepest ADOT in the league this season. His catchable target rate on those looks is a paltry 48.5%, and his route participation is a maddeningly low 83.9%. Not exactly the best combination for consistent production. That said, he carries weekly ceiling as one of the most dynamic downfield threats in the league and faces a Chargers defense facing an 8.2 defensive ADOT and allowing the most air yards in the league. Romeo Dobbs has seemingly usurped Watson as the preferred red zone target in this offense, garnering a solid 25.0 red zone target rate to the 14.8% of Watson. The former's 12 red zone targets rank 8th in the league this season. Finally, Reed has a solid 12.8 ADOT and plays a heavy slot snap rate, but is in a route only 72.8% of the time, while Musgrave has a solid for a tight end 7.8 ADOT, but is in a route only 75.7% of the time. It's actually rookie Jaden Reed that leads the team in underlying metrics against zone coverage this season. 0.39 fantasy points per route run, 1.67 yards per route run, and 67.9 receiving grade. Per PFF. Likeliest Game Flow The makings of an offensive eruption are honestly present here, largely dependent on the Packers' ability to connect on deep passing and or get Aaron Jones going through the air. The fact that the Packers are so unlikely to fully push the game environment on their own means that they would likely have to first be pushed, but a second-half eruption is not out of the equation between these two teams. Volume is going to be hard to come by for the Packers, while it should be extremely concentrated amongst Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler for the Chargers, both of whom should be included in all game stack situations from this game. There are very clearly better spots on this slate, but this one is likely to go largely overlooked due to the Packers' recent struggles at putting points on the board. The likeliest scenario tells the tale of the Packers continuing to struggle in the first half, allowing the Chargers to be methodical on offense to start the game. The Cardinals at the Texans kick off Sunday, November 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47.5. The audio for this write-up is unavailable due to time constraints. Please visit OneWeekSeason.com to read the full NFL Edge write-up for this game. The Titans at the Jaguars kick off Sunday, November 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40. Game Overview by Pappy This game has a low total because only the Jaguars are expected to do any scoring. How much scoring the Jaguars will do will directly depend on the Titans' ability to keep up in the game. Christian Kirk and Calvin Ridley both qualify as play-passing-game pieces against the Titans, guys this week. Both are priced at or below 6K on DraftKings. 
Trevor Lawrence hasn't scored more than 20.7 DraftKings points all season. This is a get-right spot at home against a pass-funnel defense, but he has shown no upside so far this year. Travis Etienne saw his lowest snap share, 61% of the season last week, coming out of the Jags' bye. The game was also a blowout, and he got his bell rung on a trick play. The Titans still want to play 1990s football, but Will Levis looks like a gunslinger, boasting the highest ADOT in the league. DeAndre Hopkins has seen an elite target share and is the only Titans wide receiver to collect any volume. He burned a large portion of the field last week and might be under-owned. How Tennessee will try to win The 3-6 Titans limp into Week 11, having gone 1-4 in their past five games. The Titans are in the basement of the AFC, and it would take a small miracle for them to make the playoffs. They've essentially accepted their fate, finally turning to Levis, who has played a lot more like a first-year starter the last two weeks than he did after his hot start against the pass-funnel Falcons. Levis needs to go through normal growing pains, but he does have the look of a quarterback who is going to be good. We've seen this archetype over the years, Peyton Manning being the best example, of a strong-armed rookie who makes a lot of plays alongside a lot of mistakes in his first season. The Titans have opened the offense by their standards the past couple of weeks. Levis leads the league with an 11.4-yard ADOT, but they still rank second to last in pace of play, are 22nd in pass rate over expectation, and 19th in passing rate. Mike Vrabel's team has a ground-and-pound identity. That isn't going to change as long as he is the head coach. The Titans' long-term future is better served by losing out for higher draft picks but Vrabel's butt is probably starting to feel warm. He's going to try and do everything he can to motivate his team to win this game, likely giving a speech that involves hitting him in the mouth. Despite Vrabel's zeal, this version of the Titans has one of the worst offensive lines in the league, 31st ranked by PFF. They couldn't protect Levis at all last week, leading to 13 hits and 4 sacks. Even though the Jaguars' defense was gashed by the 49ers, they've generally been good this year. Their run defense has been strong, number 4 in DVOA, and their pass defense has been well above average, number 6 in DVOA. There isn't an obvious place to attack them, and even if there was, the Titans would still run the ball. The Titans' best chance is to come out throwing, but that is unlikely to be their game plan. Expect another run-heavy approach, with a little bit more willingness to let Levis attack downfield than we've seen over the past few years with Ryan Tannehill. How Jacksonville will try to win. The 6-3 Jags come into Week 11 fresh off running into the 49ers in buzzsaw mode. The merciless beating they got last week aside, this year's Jags have been one of the better teams in the league. They were on a five-game winning streak before last week, and they're still atop the suddenly competitive AFC South. The Jags have been playing at average speed this year, 16th in pace, while being one of the most pass-leaning teams in football. 5th in PROE, but are only actually throwing an average number of passes, 14th in the passing rate. That discrepancy is because Doug Peterson has long been one of the most adaptable coaches in the league. The Jaguars want to pass to take the lead, but they're more than happy to slow things down and play clock control football if they're ahead on the scoreboard. The Jags' O-line got run over last week, and they have been a below-average unit, 19th ranked by PFF, but they've got an outstanding play from right guard Brandon Scherf, who has the second-highest pass block grade among guards. 
They should be able to keep Lawrence clean in this game. The Titans have been tough against the run, number four in DVOA, and set a flame through the air, 27th in DVOA. Vrabel's teams have become one of the most predictable pass funnels. They're stout against the run but can't cover anyone, and they routinely face one of the highest opponent pass play rates in the league. Nothing has changed this season, and Peterson is the type of coach who adjusts for his competition. The Jaguars are likely to come out throwing, with the main risk of them becoming run-heavy being that they take an early lead. Expect the Jags to come out passing for as long as the game is close, but if they get up multiple scores, proceed to take their foot off the gas and chew clock. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a lowish total, 40, but the Jags have a healthy team total, 23.5. It's easy to predict that the Jags will come out throwing, because everyone does against the Titans. Peterson is also a smart offensive coach who adjusts to his opponent, which makes the chances of a pass-heavy start for Jacksonville one of the easiest things to predict on the slate. There is a good chance they'll find success in that approach and be able to consistently move the ball before taking an early lead. The Titans try to play like it's the 90s, but they're finding that more and more difficult as they continually fall behind on the scoreboard. Vrabel is feeling the pressure, or perhaps Levis is just a gunslinger, but the Titans have been willing to be more aggressive down the field in their past several games. The most likely game flow has the Jaguars taking an early lead and turning to the run. The Titans will play their normal 90s football until they're losing, and then will let Levis take his shots. If those shots hit, this game could end up being interesting. But the most likely game flow has those shots missing and the Jags winning comfortably with a lot of running in the second half. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Raiders at the Dolphins kick off Sunday, November 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Hilo Electric rookie running back Devon Achain returned to a limited session Wednesday and Thursday after having his 21-day practice window opened. It remains to be seen if he'll be activated for Week 11, but it's currently looking like he will be active on Sunday. Dolphins running back Raheem Mostert was limited in both practices this week, which is notable, at bare minimum, considering the team is coming off its bye week. All Raiders players got in a limited session at minimum on Thursday, meaning they appear likely to be at full strength against the Dolphins. How Las Vegas will try to win The Raiders have fallen to 25th in pass rate over expectation, with two straight games of extreme rush rates under interim head coach Antonio Pierce, during which time rookie starting quarterback Aiden O'Connell has attempted just 52 passes in total. That compares to the 64 combined team rush attempts over a two-game sample since Josh McDaniel's dismissal. The Raiders have been one of the more run-funnel defenses in the league this season, which has allowed Pierce to keep the ball on the ground and shorten games recently. Expect more of the same moving forward, even in a matchup with a Dolphins team that should find some level of success in this spot. After seeing 20 or more carries just twice in the team's first eight games played, workhorse running back Josh Jacobs has seen 26 and 27 carries the last two weeks. That said, his once-consistent pass-game usage has fallen off a cliff during that time, seeing just two total targets in the previous two contests. 
Even so, averaging 27.5 running back opportunities after a coaching change should be treated as more signal than noise as it comes with a true predictive factor, as opposed to a more descriptive statistic that would be more influenced by game-noisy inputs like game environment. All of that to say, Jacobs currently holds one of the most robust workloads of any back in the league. He is also coming off his first game all season with more than 100 yards on the ground as he continues to struggle through inefficiency, even behind an offensive line generating the fifth highest yards before contact mark at 1.52 yards per carry. The matchup on the ground should be considered middling, at best, against a Dolphins defense holding opposing backs to 3.9 yards per carry behind just 1.24 yards allowed before contact. Amir Abdullah should mix in for obvious passing down work, while customary change-of-pace options Amir White has been utilized sparingly in recent weeks. After double-digit targets in four of his first six games played, complementary wide receiver Jacoby Myers has seen just seven targets over the previous two games while taking a distant backseat to alpha wide receiver Devontae Adams. For comparison, Adams has seen 20 targets over those two games, with 13 his last time out. In fact, Adams has seen a target on 33 of O'Connell's 91 pass attempts as the starter this season, good for an insane 36.3% target market share. Myers has seen just 11 targets in O'Connell's three starts, a paltry 12.1% target market share. Tight end Michael Mayer has become far more involved from the perspectives of snap rate and route participation rate, seeing 88% or more of the offensive snaps in each of the previous three games, but failing to eclipse a modest six targets in any game this year. In other words, this offense went from a highly concentrated unit amongst three players to a highly concentrated unit amongst one player, with everyone on the team outside of Adams highly unlikely to see more than five or six targets on a given week. With that likeliest scenario understood, it is at least worth mentioning that the Raiders have not experienced a negative game script while under the tutelage of Pierce, which could open up an opportunity for one of the secondary pieces to see an increase to their modest expectation. How Miami will try to win The Dolphins rank 7th in PROE and are down to 17th in overall pace of play at 28.6 seconds per play. They also rank just 22nd in plays per games at 61.4, which is most directly correlated to their offensive efficiency than it is to any other predictive metric. It goes without saying, but this team has numerous pieces that can score from anywhere on the field, and they lead the league in first downs per play, achieving a first down on 36.7% of their plays this season. The skill position core of Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddell, Mostert, and A-Chain is the fastest combination of four primary contributors of any team in the league. And, quite possibly, would love for someone to fact-check this, I have no idea for certain, but it feels right, the history of the league. We know the drill with this team by now. Expect high rates of pre-snap motion, like the highest in the league, high rates of forward-thinking route concepts, and high rates of zone gap run blocking carries, starting with a high rate of outside zone concepts and then a sprinkling of inside zone concepts as the game continues. The likely return of A-Chain is likely to force a near-even split in snap rate and opportunity between him and the incumbent Mostert, assuming A-Chain is physically ready to resume the workload we expect. That does introduce some level of uncertainty here, which is exacerbated by the fact that Mostert has also been limited in both practice sessions coming out of the team's bye. Either way, we're likely to see a two-way split amongst Mostert and A-Chain, 
with Salvan Ahmed likely to be used sparingly. The matchup on the ground is a good one against a Raiders defense seeding 4.6 yards per carry behind 1.42 yards per carry allowed before contact. The expected return of Divine Diablo to full strength is a significant boost to the Las Vegas defense, but this unit has not seen a run game like the one they will see in Week 11 to this point this season. The Raiders have held opposing offenses to just 5.7 net yards per pass attempt this season, while playing above average rates of zone coverage. While in zone, their defense has yielded just 8.9 yards per reception and 5.4 yards per pass attempt, highlighting a successful defensive scheme. Even so, Hill and Waddle are different animals altogether against zone coverage, with Hill boasting gaudy numbers and Waddle not too far behind. Hill's 55 receptions for 916 yards on a 36.6 targets per route run rate and 202 routes run is banana bonkers. Like, leads the league across the board kind of banana bonkers. Waddle holds a solid 26.5% TPRR rate against zone himself, ranking 20th in the league in fantasy points per route run against zone as well. And all of that comes directly back to an offensive scheme that is built to maximize their exploits against zone coverage, which they have done a pretty solid job of doing through 10 weeks. Cedric Wilson has been the team's preferred wide receiver three when healthy this season, which makes sense considering the rich contract he signed two off-seasons ago. Although, to be fair, he was utilized sparingly last year under the same contract. That said, he has yet to see more than a 65% snap rate, and even that came in a Week 9 game where Waddle left early. Recent acquisition Chase Claypool should see snaps as well, which has impacted Braxton Berrios the most in recent weeks. Finally, Durham Smythe has been a true every-down tight end this season, albeit with laughably low underlying metrics. 9.7% TPRR, 7.4% target share, 9.8% red zone target share, and 6.1 yard ADOT. Likeliest Game Flow It is likely that the Dolphins are able to break through for offensive success sooner rather than later against an opponent with inferior talent on the defensive side of the ball. In this particular spot, that production is likeliest to come on the ground against a relative run-funnel defense, but the truth of the matter is that it could realistically come from anywhere on the field when we're talking about the Dolphins. That is likely to put the recent run-heavy nature of the Las Vegas offense to the test. That also means that the driving force behind the game environment is likeliest to be the Dolphins, considering the fact that the Raiders are unlikely to open things up without being forced, given the current conditions at play in the organization. That just so happens to align with the likeliest scenario here, meaning we could see more pass volume from the Raiders than what we have seen during the recent two-game win streak. The Giants at the Commanders kick off Sunday, November 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 37. Game Overview by Mike Johnson the Tommy DeVito experience will continue for the Giants as they set their sights on the top pick in the 2024 draft. New York's defense is suffering as it struggles to keep up a high level of play due to the continued short drives from their offense. This is one of several rematches on the Week 11 slate, as the Giants won the first matchup between these teams 14-7, with Tyrod Taylor at quarterback. Washington has been quietly competitive throughout this season, despite their 4-6 record. The Commander's pass defense has been horrific this season, 
but that might not matter in this matchup. How New York will try to win. Rewatching the Giants' 49-17 loss to the Cowboys in Week 10, as strange as it may sound, it feels hard to put much blame on the Giants' defense. The New York offense was off the field so quickly on every drive that it became hard to continue to hold their ground against the high-powered Dallas offense. Looking at the box score, you can see that Dallas scored only 7 points in the opening quarter and 7 points in the fourth quarter, dropping 35 points combined in the second and third quarters. This isn't to say the Giants' defense looked great, as they gave up 640 total yards of offense, but rather to point out how, despite football having separate components, offense, defense, special teams, those components are correlated in terms of performance in many ways. Like a snowball rolling down a hill, good performance on one side of the ball often predicates better conditions for the opposing side. This is why we can often see teams with wildly different outcomes on a week-to-week -week basis. As for the Giants, it is hard to see big swings in a positive direction as currently constructed. Their defense ranks 26th in DVOA against the pass, and 30th in DVOA against the run, while their offense roughly resembles a high school JV team. Looking at this week, the Giants are sticking with Tommy DeVito at quarterback and have not shown much trust to let him push the ball down the field even when they are getting run out of the building, making it hard to imagine they will be aggressive to start this game. That's a bit of an issue this week as Washington's defense is far more vulnerable against the pass. This is a secondary that we have been actively attacking in DFS so far this season and that opponents have noticed and have been letting their quarterbacks loose against them. The fact that New York likely can't take advantage of its opponent's biggest weakness is a negative factor for their projection. The Giants' game plan will be squarely built around Saquon Barkley and the running game, with their passing focused on play action and short-to-intermediate bunny throws that let DeVito protect the ball. New York won an ugly, low-scoring game against Washington the first time around, and they will attempt to do so again this week. There will likely be a bit more energy on the defensive side of the ball as well, knowing that they've accomplished this feat once and that this is an offense they can contain to the point where maybe 14 to 70 points from the offense can be enough. How Washington will try to win The Commanders have a 4-6 record, but have been extremely competitive for most of the year. They had two hideous losses to the Bills and Bears early in the season but have close losses to the Eagles twice and the Seahawks, two teams that are very clearly playoff-caliber contenders in the NFC. Washington continues to let Sam Howell grow and throws the ball at the highest rate in the league, while ranking third in pass rate over expectation. The commander's offense, under first-year offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy has been an interesting one to watch evolve, and they have been held under 20 points only twice all season. Interestingly, both times, they were held under 10 points by the Bills, only scoring 3 points, and this same Giants team who held them to 7 points. Said another way, the Washington offense has been excellent for most of the year, but when they've failed, they've failed miserably. This week against the Giants presents an interesting conundrum for the Commanders. They know how bad this Giants offense is in its current state, and how unlikely they will put up a lot of points on their own. That would make it likely that they could take a more conservative approach to avoid turnovers that give New York easy points. 
the alternative is that if they come out with their normal aggressive pass rate and can put up some early points, they can force New York's hand into some offensive decisions that likely lead to more turnovers and effectively put the game out of reach very quickly. For what it's worth, the commanders seem pretty set on who they are, and head coach Ron Rivera appears to be keeping his hands out of it and letting Bienemy do his thing. The Giants have been poor against both the run and the pass overall this season, and while they did perform well the first time against Washington, it appears to have been more of an outlier performance than anything. The general outlook for the team and franchise has shifted dramatically since that first matchup, so it's unlikely the New York defense will put together another great game here. Washington is playing far better than their record and will be at home facing a divisional foe on the ropes and dealing with a lot right now. They will likely come out aggressive on both sides of the ball and hope to use this game to spark a second-half surge into NFC playoff contention. Likeliest Game Flow The commander's pass protection is still not elite, but Sam Howell is taking far fewer sacks the last three weeks than he was earlier this season. Those fewer negative plays should lead to more successful drives for Washington and some early points that put them in control of the game. Saquon Barkley will likely need to break loose for a long run if New York wants to flip the field and get early points, or the Giants will be relying on Washington turnovers and mistakes, keeping this a low-scoring game. Sam Howell's improved play and Washington's aggressive pass rate are likely to find some success, and I wouldn't be surprised to see a few explosive plays early. The commanders were able to make things happen recently against outstanding teams like the Eagles and Seahawks. If they go into Seattle in a hostile environment against an excellent defense and play as well as they did, I expect them to be able to put up a solid offensive game at home against New York. Notably, this second matchup likely helps Washington's cause, as they will be able to adjust to some things New York did to slow them down in the first game. All things considered, the commanders should control this game from the outset and may be looking to get a convincing win here heading into their big matchup against the Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day. The Buccaneers at the 49ers kick off Sunday, November 19th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson These teams are in the thick of tight divisional races and are coming off big Week 10 victories that ended their respective losing streaks. Tampa Bay's defense has been one of the league's bigger pass-funnel units this season. The 49ers' offense is primarily built around their running game, but is perhaps the most efficient passing offense in the league. Matchups and situational tendencies will likely lead to elevated play volume for this game relative to what the first layer of stats would indicate. The 49ers have a quick turnaround for a Thanksgiving night showdown with the Seahawks, which will have huge divisional and playoff implications. Both defenses rank top five in opponent pass rate, pointing to a potentially explosive game environment. How Tampa Bay will try to win. The Bucks lost four straight games before last week's dominant victory over the Titans, and their season appeared to be slowly slipping away. However, closer inspection shows that the recent three losses in that span were all by single digits and were by a combined 11 points. Tampa Bay quickly went from a team whose record appeared to be fluky at 3-1 coming out of their Week 5 bye to a team that has been more formidable than their current 4-5 record would indicate. 
The Bucks were likely robbed by a missed pass interference call on a Hail Mary against the Bills that could have led to an upset victory on Thursday night football in Week 8 and were stunned by late-game heroics and a historic performance from C.J. Stroud in Week 9. As they say, it's a game of inches, and the Bucks are extremely close to being a 6-3 and team right now. Coincidentally, the same record as the 49ers currently boast. Despite those narrow losses, the Bucks are only a half game behind the Saints in the NFC South, and with the Saints on bye, they could take the division lead with an upset win this week. Baker Mayfield's return to relevance continued with another solid performance in Week 10 against the Titans. Mayfield has had his rough moments this season, but for a player that so many had written off after last season, and the one prior, Mayfield has shown toughness and competitiveness for the Bucks, and has been very good at getting the ball to the right players at the right times this season. The Bucks will need him this week, as their running game is one of the worst in the league, and they face a tough 49ers defense that may not have the greatest run defense metrics right now, but is far from a pushover. The Bucks rank 32nd in the NFL in yards per carry, 31st in rushing offense DVOA, and 25th in PFF run blocking grade. They are almost certain to have very little success running the ball this week, and with the 49ers offense appearing to be clicking again, they should enter this game knowing they will need to score points early and often to have a chance. The Bucks' defense has been extremely opponent-sensitive this season, having strong showings against weaker offenses like the Titans, Falcons, and Saints while struggling against the more explosive teams on their schedule like the Eagles, Bills, and Texans. This 49ers offense is among the best in the league, and Tampa Bay will need to approach this game aggressively, offensively, to have a chance. How San Francisco will try to win As we have discussed in the NFL Edge several times this year, the 49ers offense should be viewed more like a basketball team than how we look at most NFL offenses in evaluation. Brock Purdy is the point guard and distributes the ball to his four elite playmakers, Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and George Kittle. CMC gets the most shots, aka touches, but nearly every play the 49ers run is designed to give it potential to be explosive, and the few vanilla plays they run are usually designed to set up an explosive play later in the game. Rather than the usual run-pass splits used to elevate most teams, the 49ers require a deeper understanding of their scheme and philosophy to make sense of why they are so difficult to defend. Put simply, their run-heavy play-calling splits do not adequately reflect the explosiveness they present to a defense on an every-play basis, nor do they give proper respect to the fear that opponents have on every snap. This week against the Bucks, the 49ers are likely to have their way. The 49ers have the league's top-ranked passing offense by DVOA while posing a real threat to their running game due to CMC and Debo Samuel particularly with star tackle Trent Williams back on the field. Williams and Samuel had missed some time, and it is no coincidence that the 49ers' rough patch came without those key players. Those two players are emotional leaders who embody the physical nature the 49ers want to play with, and whose presence changes the swagger this team plays with and the effectiveness of their scheme. We have seen how bad this Bucks defense can be against teams that can be explosive through the air and the 49ers have weapons all over the field. We should expect San Francisco to have their normal play-calling splits, which has them ranked 21st in the NFL in pass rate over expectation. But they should have extreme efficiency on their limited pass attempts, leading to some quick scoring drives and early points. 
Tampa Bay ranks fifth in the league in opponent pass rate, which won't turn the 49ers into a run-and-gun offense, but will certainly elevate their pass rate slightly and increase their chances for big plays. Likeliest Game Flow This game profiles as one with the potential for elevated play volume and sneaky shootout possibilities. The Bucks have served as a catalyst for explosive game environments, and the 49ers offense appears to have its mojo back after last week's performance in Jacksonville. Tampa Bay is likely to throw at a high rate due to their poor run game and will need to keep up with the 49ers offense. While the 49ers offense may have their usual play-calling splits, but are in a spot where they are very likely to have success with their passing game and create explosive chunk plays. Said another way, the Bucks' defense is bad enough against the pass that the 49ers should do very well when passing. And even though the Bucks' defense has been solid against the run, they could still give up big plays on the ground in this matchup. This leads to a game flow that will likely be very similar to the meeting between these teams from last season, with the 49ers jumping out to a big early lead due to their explosive and efficient offense, and Tampa Bay having to almost completely abandon the run. The 49ers offense had a rough stretch, largely due to injuries, in weeks 6, 7, and 8. Before that, they scored at least 30 points in every game, and coming out of their week 9 bye, they dropped 34 points on the road against an elite Jaguars defense. San Francisco should control the scoreboard and game script in this one, with the Bucks needing to force a couple of 49ers turnovers and make a couple of big plays in the passing game if they want any chance of keeping it close. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Jets at the Bills kick off Sunday, November 19th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 39.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson the Jets' season is on the brink as they continue to lose close games despite solid play from their defense. All things considered, Zach Wilson looked better than most people will admit last week. Buffalo is playing on a short week and just fired their offensive coordinator for throwing interceptions and defensive substitutions. Buffalo is playing on a short week and just fired their offensive coordinator for throwing interceptions and defensive substitutions. This is a rematch of a Week 1 game that the Jets won on Monday Night Football in dramatic fashion on a punt return touchdown. The Bills have lost three of their last four games, with two of those matchups coming at the hands of teams that have not played well this season. How New York will try to win The Jets are a frustrating team to watch for many reasons. Zach Wilson has obviously had his struggles and does some head-scratching things at times. On the other hand, he also made a few plays in Week 10 against the Raiders that were absolutely incredible and only a handful of QBs in the league could even think of trying. The interesting thing about the Jets and Wilson is that their apparent lack of confidence in him, and his frequent lack of confidence in himself, leads to a very conservative approach that leans on the run. Watching the games and seeing how he performs when they are down late and have no choice but to cut it loose, I can't help but wonder if he would actually be better if they took a more aggressive approach. The early down runs are pretty predictable and often lead to longer third downs in predictable passing situations. 
Just a theory, but the Jets may benefit from playing as the aggressor rather than on their heels all the time. While there is a greater chance of being run out of the building with that approach, the alternative is they just continue being put in these close games that they are going to come out on the wrong end of in most instances. Perhaps the biggest issue for the Jets' offense has been their offensive line. They rank 30th in PFF pass blocking grade, and this week faced the Bills and their 12th graded pass rush. Buffalo's defensive scheme is primarily a cover three look that focuses on preventing big plays in the passing game. Ironically, the Jets' offense also focuses on preventing big plays in their passing game. The Jets had a ton of success running on the Bills in Week 1, and that was when they were still taking things slowly with Brees Hall. In that game, Hall had 127 rushing yards on only 10 carries. Now operating as the clear bell cow for this team, Hall will be the centerpiece of the Jets' offensive game plan in this matchup, and seems very likely to see 20-25 to touches with work on the ground and through the air. Garrett Wilson continues to operate as a true alpha wide receiver and is almost a lock to see double-digit targets once again with a legitimate shot at 15 targets in this game if New York falls behind. Meanwhile, tight end Tyler Conklin has had his best two games of the season the last two weeks and should see a lot of volume once again with Buffalo's scheme forcing things underneath. All things considered, the Jets are going to once again rely on their defense keeping them in this one. With the offense built around Hall and Garrett Wilson while they are attempting to play hide the quarterback with Zach Wilson. How Buffalo will try to win. The Bills entered this season as Super Bowl contenders and enter Week 11 needing to spark their season if they even want to make the playoffs. It is wild to look back at their schedule and see that after Week 4, they had a 3-1 record and had won their previous three games by an average of 30 points per game. Things in the NFL can change quickly, and no one knows that better right now than former Bills offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey. He was fired on Tuesday morning after the Bills lost in embarrassing fashion on national television at home against the Broncos. The Bills have a top three offense in the NFL, and I can't remember another time where a team playing at that level on one side of the ball fired that coordinator midseason for anything that wasn't an off-field issue. However, head coach Sean McDermott is in charge of the defense, and apparently he can't be the issue, so instead they are blaming Dorsey for Josh Allen's three turnovers, James Cook's fumble, and the Bills coaching staff having 12 men on the field in a situation where everyone in the stadium and watching the game knew exactly what was going to happen coming out of a timeout. I digress, but the reality here is that things are tense in Buffalo, and the wrong guy likely took the fall. As for how Buffalo will approach this game, it really is extremely hard to predict. As Warren Sharp pointed out in an article this week, McDermott has been talking about needing to run more and be a more balanced offense ever since they lost in the AFC Championship game a couple of years ago. Firing Dorsey may be McDermott's Mike McCarthy firing Kellen Moore moment from the offseason where he took matters into his own hands to force them to become more run-heavy. To McCarthy's credit, he has changed course mid-season, and he's letting Dak Prescott air it out. However, for the Bills this week, there feels like a good chance they avoid New York's top-five pass defense and try to establish the run against their middling run defense, especially with the lack of perceived threat from the opponent's offense with Zach Wilson on the other side. 
We often talk about how in some games, teams may be more aggressive knowing they need to score a lot of points due to the threat of an elite quarterback on the other side. On the flip side of that, teams who do not fear the opponent's quarterback find it much easier to fall into a ball control game plan that focuses on not losing rather than trying to win and land knockout punches early. With that in mind, and all the context around Buffalo, I would expect a more balanced approach and conservative game plan from them than their season-long statistics would indicate. When they do pass, Stefan Diggs and Dalton Kincaid are likely to be featured in the short to intermediate areas, with a specific focus on avoiding the kinds of turnovers that the Jets rely on getting from their defense to stay competitive. Likeliest Game Flow We already saw these teams play once this season, and it was an exciting but low-scoring game that featured more big plays by the defenses and special teams than it did by the offenses. The unique situation around the Bills' offense gives this game a wide range of outcomes as they are playing at home and can really jump on their opponents sometimes. So an aggressive game plan that got them out ahead early could lead to Jets' mistakes where things get out of hand. The likelihood of a conservative Bills game plan, however, leads us to a situation where both teams are likely to be fairly run-oriented and risk-averse. The Jets' defense is very good and can keep teams from putting up large amounts of points, while also performing extremely well in the red zone at keeping opponents from turning drives into touchdowns. The Bills' offense may be less aggressive and potent than usual, leading to fewer red zone opportunities. They have actually been very good in the red zone this season, so fewer chances there and a tougher red zone opponent leads to a high chance of Buffalo controlling the time of possession, but failing to separate early in this game. The result of all of this, along with a run-heavy game plan from New York that is likely to have success against Buffalo's scheme and injury-ravaged defense, leads to a situation where the most likely scenario is another close, low-scoring game that ends with Robert Saleh defending Zach Wilson, or Sean McDermott finding someone new to blame. The Seahawks at the Rams kick off Sunday, November 19th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson A rematch of a Week 1 game that was a surprising and dominant performance by the Rams in a 30-13 victory. The Seahawks have a quick turnaround for a Thursday night showdown with the 49ers, which will have huge divisional and playoff implications. The Rams are coming off their bye week and need some wins to stay in playoff contention after a hot start to their season. Seattle's defense has been elite against the run for most of this season. The Rams have scored more than 20 points only once in their last five games. How Seattle will try to win. The Seahawks are a hard team to nail down, as they have a 6-3 record and a couple of impressive performances, but also have been dominated twice this season, including a season-opening defeat at the hands of the Rams. That game was a 30-13 Rams victory, and the Ravens steamrolled Seattle two weeks ago in Baltimore 37-3. If you look closer at the Seahawks' victories this season, this is what you see. A 37-31 impressive road win over a very good Lions team. A 37-27 home win over the 1-8 Panthers. A 24-3 win over the 2-8 Giants. A 20-10 win over the 2-8 Cardinals. A 24-20 home win over the Browns with their backup QB. 
and a 29-26 home win over the 4-6 and six Commanders. Looking down that list, you can see that the Seahawks really haven't had an overly impressive performance since Week 2 against the Lions. The Seahawks can't control who was on their schedule, but it is hard to give them the respect their record would initially indicate once you understand the totality of what went into that record. The Seahawks have a negative one-point differential for the season through Week 10. For comparison's sake, they are tied for the NFC West division lead with the 49ers, who have a plus 89-point differential. This week's matchup with the Rams presents an opportunity for the Seahawks to avenge their embarrassing Week 1 loss, but it will surely be no easy task. The Rams and the Seahawks know each other well, and both coaching staffs have been in place for several years, so there should be very few surprises, but also, both teams know a few things that will work against their opponent on both sides of the ball. The Seahawks' passing game appears to be hitting its stride after a very good performance against the Commanders last week. In Week 1, rookie wide receiver Jackson Smith-Najigba was coming off an injury, and the Seahawks lost both starting tackles during that game. Seattle's pass protection should be much improved by comparison this week, and Geno Smith is playing well with all his receivers available. The Rams play the 6th highest rate of zone coverage and rank 26th in the NFL in quarterback pressure rate. This creates a situation where Geno Smith should have a clean pocket and be able to find his receivers in open spots in the Rams' zone coverage this week to move the ball. The Rams' run defense metrics are a little misleading, as they have Aaron Donald, who can disrupt things and grade out as PFF's 8th-ranked run defense. The Seattle running game has been up and down this season, but they have not run well against the Rams historically. Notably, the Seahawks' passing game had one of their best performances of the year last year against the Rams on the road in the second half of the year. It was one of the few times that both DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett had highly productive games in the same week. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win The Rams are coming off their Week 10 bye, which could not have come at a better time. After a promising start to the season, the Rams lost a close game to Pittsburgh and then got the doors blown off by the Cowboys. Star quarterback Matthew Stafford got injured in the loss to the Cowboys, and the Rams produced almost zero offense in a 20-3 loss to the Packers. Stafford is still practicing in full heading into this week's game, and the Rams will try to get back on track. If they can pull off a win this week, their next two games are against the 2-8 Cardinals and a Browns team who just lost their quarterback for the season. The Rams currently have a 3-6 record, but a win this week would give them a very realistic chance of getting back to a .500 record and a chance to sneak into the playoffs in the final month of the season. The first time these teams met, the Rams' running backs combined for three touchdowns, but it was the passing game that torched the Seahawks as Matthew Stafford threw for 334 yards. This week, the Rams will have Cooper Cup in the lineup. Cup missed the Week 1 game while they will have a completely different backfield due to the trade of Cam Akers and the injury to Kyron Williams. Seattle's run defense has been highly opponent-sensitive this season, giving up a few big games to the better running teams they have faced, while otherwise being very stout. In the first meeting between these teams, the Rams averaged only 2.2 yards per carry on running back rushes. The Rams' backfield now consists of veteran journeyman Daryl Henderson and Royce Freeman rather than Cam Akers and Kyron Williams so it seems highly unlikely that their running game efficiency will be much better this week. 
The Rams' offensive scheme is built in large part around their running game, so they won't be able to abandon it altogether, but they will almost certainly rely heavily on their passing game for the actual yardage and production. Pukanakua and Tutu Atwell have had huge games against the Seahawks' zone heavy cover three scheme in week one, and adding Cooper Cup to the mix should add fuel to that fire. Likeliest Game Flow This game has sneaky shootout potential with both teams sporting solid run defenses and conservative zone-heavy coverage schemes. Each team also has very talented receiving core and should be able to move the ball well. This game has the fourth highest over-under on the main slate, and the point spread is basically a pick'em, which are two data points that suggest a high possibility of this game turning into a back-and-forth game. The Seahawks generally need to be pulled into high-scoring games, and the Rams are not an overly explosive offense naturally, so it is unlikely that a shootout breaks loose in the first half. Rather, a slow-building game with both offenses producing lasting drives consistently is most likely. In last week's game against the Commanders, the Seahawks moved the ball well early but settled for three first-half field goals. Things finally opened up and both teams started scoring touchdowns in the second half, but a similar game script seems highly plausible in this matchup. Seattle's offense ranks 25th in red zone touchdown percentage and their defense ranks 29th in red zone touchdown percentage allowed. This is yet another data point explaining why many consider them a bit of a fraud at this point in the season. It is extremely difficult to maintain a great record with that kind of negative disparity in red zone performance. This week's game flow and outcome will likely depend heavily on how these teams perform in the red zone, as both teams should be able to move the ball, but are unlikely to score touchdowns from long, explosive plays. (laughs) 